Two and a Half Admins, episode 35. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got something to plug that isn't a blog post, Alan. Yes. EuroBSDCon is having their conference for 2021 in September. Uh, I think it's most likely going to be virtual, but there's, you know, some sliver of hope that maybe it won't be, uh, in which case it'll be in Vienna, Austria. But anyway... The call for papers is open, so if you have something interesting to present, uh, please go and submit your paper. Right, well, link in the show notes. So once again, we're going to do a whole episode of your emails. You can send those in to show at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who's supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you go to 2.5admins.com slash support, you'll find details there. And remember, for $5 or more, per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And you can also send us your questions there. If you are supporting us, then you'll jump the queue. All right, Eric says, I'm a beginner exploring the sysadmin space, and I've been learning and using self-hosted apps like Nextcloud and Sandstorm on a VPS. After listening to some of your conversations around security, I've become increasingly anxious about my lack of security on my server and started researching basic practices such as setting up firewall rules, limiting SSH access, etc. However, I'm not sure how or what to do to continue hardening the server. What is overkill or not for my use case, storing personal files, etc. Are there any definitive resources that you two recommend on the subject of securing servers for a beginner starting out? No, there's really not, because that's like an entire career, not, you know, like mm-hmm. a 50-page self-help book. But the biggest advice is, you know, if this is a server for your personal use and it doesn't need to be available to the entire Internet, then make it only available to you and not the entire Internet with a VPN tool such as WireGuard or Nebula. If the Internet can't get to your services because they're locked away behind a virtual private network with solid encryption, then, uh, you know, your, your problems largely go away. Yeah, so basically on the on the VPS, you configure a NextCloud or whatever to only listen on the internal IP address you set up for uh, the VPN. And so if you connect with the VPN, then you can access NextCloud, even though it's on the internet. But if you're not on the VPN, then NextCloud isn't there. Clarifying that a little bit, um, the proper way to do that is really not to go into NextCloud and mess with NextCloud's config. The proper way to do that is set up a firewall on the VM that only listens on those WireGuard ports. The, The only thing it's listening for on the public port is, you know, WireGuard or Nebula or what have you. Yeah, that can work too. SSH is probably the the biggest way somebody's going to get in. Uh, and, you know, it's not very likely unless you're using a, a terrible password or something. But you can configure two-factor authentication for the SSH if, if you're worried about it. Yeah, two-factor is always, always nice to have. You can also not listen for SSH on the public side either and literally only listen for your VPN. If your VPN goes down, then you have the option of getting in, uh, you know, via like a Lish SSH section where basically you've got to log into. You get the VNC type thing or whatever they give you. Kind of. It's a web console anyway, is the point. Because, yeah, the other thing I would say is if it's available, set up the two factor on the host control panel thing, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? It's entirely possible that you've you've locked down your server super tight, but if they can log in and uh, get to the console, then they can do whatever they want. (laughs) That is actually the first thing you need to put the two-factor on because it's a very, very high-profile target that, uh, you know, people absolutely want and are looking for. So you want to make certain, you want to make very certain security at your VM provider 
you want to not use a stupid password and you absolutely do want to turn on two-factor authentication. But what about if you do want it to be exposed to the internet? What do you do then? You have a career in front of you. Yeah, uh, but kind of you can apply some of the stuff we talked about the other week. You know, if if it's a web service, put Nginx in front of it and only proxy the traffic you want. You can configure rate limiting so that if they are trying to brute force a password, they can only try three times a minute. Or, you know, if they try fail more than five times, they get banned for an hour or a day or a millennia and a bunch of things like that to lock it down. Like in general... There aren't going to be a bunch of random services listening by default. You know, it's it's not the 1990s anymore. Uh, so the firewall is only going to do so much. It's mostly going to protect you in the case, like Jim said, there's stuff that you want. It just listens on whatever interface it wants, and we're using the firewall to restrict it so it's only available via the VPN. Or if you accidentally start something or something, the firewall is maybe going to help you there. But uh, in general, you don't break into a server by poking it on a random port number. It's usually because of something that's uh, gone wrong somewhere or because uh, Shodan was able to scan and find that you're running this particular thing. And then some day in the future, there's a vulnerability for that specific thing. Somebody grabs a giant list of all the things running that version of that thing and they go and use the remote code execution vulnerability and, and get a shell on your machine and do whatever they want. Which your primary defense against that is update your crap. Whatever operating system and distribution you prefer, you need to figure out how to get automatic upgrades going and you need to get them going because if you're relying on yourself to manually upgrade it every so often, you know what? One day you're going to quit. You're absolutely going to do it. So you need automatic upgrades. You need to know how those work. Beyond that, probably more of your effort should go to monitoring and backup than anything else. You should have some idea when the usage pattern on your server becomes, you know, unexpected and weird. Like, you know, maybe when Linode tells you that your CPU has been at 100% for 10 hours, you should pay attention to that. <laughs> also, you know, if you're using Linode or DigitalOcean and you've got those automated, you know, monitors, they don't always fit your use case. Like, you may have legitimately 100% CPU drain, you know, for two or three hours, and you may be getting alerts on a daily basis and getting alert fatigue. You can configure those even with Linode or DigitalOcean itself let alone if you get into something, you know, more complex, like setting up, you know, standing up your own Nagios instance, like I do. You don't want to get alerts on stuff that happens every day. You do want to get alerts on stuff that's weird and doesn't happen more than, I don't know, maybe every couple or three weeks. Yeah, because like Jim said, the, the thing you want to really avoid is the alert fatigue, because uh, once you start ignoring the alerts is when the alert that actually matters is going to come in and going to be lost in the shuffle. And also, like Jim said, sometimes monitoring almost needs to work the other way. It's like, my machine's always busy. Why is it not doing anything right now? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, to be able to tell when things are off the normal pattern, you have to know what the normal pattern is. And that's uh, can often be the biggest thing is just knowing, knowing what it's supposed to look like and being able to say, things are not right right now. Now I can start looking at why. Yeah. And then finally, you know, I mentioned it before, but only as the one word backup. You need to be investing time into backups because, uh, you know, if you're hosting public facing services, eventually you will get compromised. Backups are a huge part of how you recover from that. Knowing how your backups work, that you're backing up all the right things and how you use that data to restore is a big thing. So if you want to be serious about this, you set up your backups, you know exactly how they work, you know exactly what is and is not getting backed up. And you practice restoring from those backups onto another test VM until you get to the point that you're like, okay, so 
you know, somebody got in and did a thing and I don't like it, but I know exactly how to separate, you know, what they did from the valid data. And I know how to stand back up all my services and get back into a production state. Back is really nice for the case where I don't know how they fucked up my machine. I'm going to take this machine off to the side and in the meantime, stand up a new one, restore my backups, get the service back online while I figure out what the fuck happened. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, backups are also important because you never know when the data center you're in is going to burn down (laughs) (laughs) and and so on. So, yes, uh, you know, the only thing people neglect uh, or put off till tomorrow more often than updating is doing the backups. And both of those are the things that are going to bite you. So you want to get them automated. But like Jim just said, you need to actually test the restore and make sure it does what you think it does. Uh, because, you know, you can have these great mythical backups. I back up everything full every day. And it turns out, oh, but this wasn't mounted right, or that wasn't getting backed up, or something is missing. And uh, now all this data is useless. Or I was backing up the database while it was changing, and so I didn't get a consistent snapshot of it, and uh, so my backup won't, you know, restore. Yeah, do not back up your MySQL binary with rsync. You need MySQL dump for that, or you need PG dump for that if you're using Postgres. Or take a ZFS snapshot and back up the .zfs slash snapshot directory when the, all the files are consistent, at least. Something. Yeah, well, even on that one, you got to be a little bit careful because the ZFS snapshot is great, but it's it's point in time consistent, which is not necessarily application consistent. Right. Now, if you're using MySQL in NODB, that's probably fine because NODB is a journaling storage engine and the database at least will be in a consistent point. Even if it wasn't when you snapshotted it, it will replay the journals or rewind them to get to database consistency. However, if your database application has not properly implemented transactions to make sure that at the application level it's always consistent you may still end up with like an insert query that's been applied but you know an update query has not been and now your application's data has gotten into a a point that while it's consistent from the MySQL level is nothing that would ever normally happen in your application and your application goes bonkers yep and so you'll actually see a lot of people uh, with scripts around it for Postgres and MySQL where as part before they take the snapshot, they'll actually lock the database. So do a flush and a lock, uh, so that everything is stable and not changing on disk. Then take the set of a snapshot and then release it. And because that of a snapshots are so fast, you you know your database is paused for a hundred milliseconds or something, but you get that crash consistent on disk version of it in the snapshot. It's still some lazy crap though. Use transactions in the application, and you don't have to worry about that. Right, but. <laughs> The less time you need MySQL to spend reading back the inodb log at startup uh, coming off the backup can make a difference, depending on how big your database is and so on. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. 
Okay, Miguel says, I've been using Jim's tool Sanoid for a while for snapshot management in my ZFS datasets. Well done. <laughs> and Syncoid to pull backups to my backup server. Now that Ubuntu systems with experimental ZFS on root come with ZSys installed and enabled by default, what is the best way to deal with ZSys snapshots? Is there a way of getting Syncoid or Sanoid to prune snapshots that it did not create itself, or would you use a custom shell script to destroy non-Sanoid snapshots once the data has been replicated in the background server? I know it seems unnecessary to use two different snapshot management tools for ZFS, but I see ZSys more as a system integrity tool, whereas I use Sanoid and ZFS to manage my user data. The other alternative I can think of would be to disable ZSys altogether and set up a hook to call Sanoid on the system datasets. However, this seems overly complicated and misses out on the ZSys boot options, which are very useful if one likes to play around like me and manages to break the system into an unbootable state. So I guess my first question is, doesn't ZSys clean up its own snapshots eventually? Define eventually. Um, I, I think they've <laughs> finally actually implemented the command that does clean them up, but I'm not sure if it's actually getting called automatically yet. Ah, okay. And from what I understand, uh, ZSys development has been put on hold for the time being. Because, hmm. yeah, my initial reaction was, you know, let ZSys clean up the ZSys snapshots and Xenoid will deal with the, the Xenoid ones. But uh, apparently that's not a thing. Well, and the other thing is, uh, Miguel was specifically talking about on his backup server. There's no way for ZSys to reach out ah, to the right. backup server and remove, you know, old snapshots there. Does Syncoid not have an option to delete snapshots from the destination once they're pruned from the host, the source? Uh, yeah, some people have asked for that, and I generally okay. tend to say hell no, because that's not what Syncoid is for. You run Sanoid on the other side okay. to handle your pruning. I don't think anybody's browbeating me into... Accepting a PR on that. So Sanoid will only delete snapshots it created. Correct. Which is how I would prefer it to be. Uh, but I could see where you at some point would want to delete older snapshots that come from something else. But yeah, with my tools, the way my stuff is set up, I purposely have the snapshots I create manually don't get pruned by anything because I created them manually for a reason. Yeah, uh, I, I think I would probably handle that by just setting up a very simple shell script on your backup server to look for ZSys, uh, you know, snapshot name formats that are, you know, more than a certain number of days old and just automatically delete those, uh, run that once a day. Uh, that's, that's, that's pretty simple to write. ZFS makes it really simple. So if you run ZFS list uh, with the capital H flag, will take away the headers and separate the fields with tabs. Lowercase p will make it print the numbers in human or uh, non-human readable. So it'll actually be like the raw number of bytes or in the case you're going to care about, the creation time of the snapshot will be the Unix epoch, like C time. So like the number of seconds since 1970 instead of a date. So then you can just do dash O name comma creation uh, and it will list all the snapshots with their name and when they were created. And you can use dash S to set the sort order. Uh, so you can just say, show me all the snapshots sorted by how old they are. And I just want to, if any of the names start with ZSys and are older than X thousand seconds ago, then just delete them. And so it's it's like a, a four line for loop in Bash. Yeah, I would suggest ZFS get rather than ZFS list. That way you can you can get only the fields you want. But uh, other than that, yes. Well, no, if you use with ZFS list dash O, you provide a comma separated list of the fields you want in the order you want them. Ah, uh, yeah, fair enough. Okay, John says, recently a UK-based professionally regulated solicitor 
sent me some documents to review and sign via DocuSign. I did, and then DocuSign promptly sent me the confirmation email containing the documents as attached PDFs. I thought the whole point of such an encrypted system was to keep such documents private and secure. So that means some personal information has now passed into the public email systems, and I wonder how secure that is. Do we, the public, know whether emails and attachments sent via the likes of Gmail, Yahoo Mail, Hotmail, etc. are encrypted at rest on their servers, or whether it is entirely possible for service technicians to spend their lunch breaks randomly reading them? So there's a couple different parts to that. The first one is there's the actual transport encryption, which is mostly optional with email at this point, but DocuSign connecting to Gmail probably uses TLS. Uh, and you can actually tell that by looking at the headers on the email you receive, whether it was transmitted at each hop with encryption or not. But then the question of at rest at Google. Yes, Gmail is encrypted at rest. Right. But is it encrypted with just one of Google's key or do they use a separate key for each account? I wonder. But the point is, it's encrypted at rest, but Google will still give it up under a subpoena. They'll probably fight it for a bit first to make it as hard as possible, but they probably will give it up. But, you know, companies like Google and Apple and so on take that kind of thing very seriously. If you look around a bit, you can find some of the, the stuff Apple uh, makes their employees agree to to work in support and so on. And they're like, yes, so, you know, celebrities use iPhones and they might call in for support or something. And then, uh, you know, you'll know where they live and don't decide to go and try to get an autograph or we'll fire you. <laughs> but uh, I don't think DocuSign is really about trying to keep the content of the PDF secret so much as just making it easy to sign stuff and prove that somebody signed it. Yeah, it's DocuSign is not terribly secure. Um, I mean, it, it basically depends on the person at an email address being the person that's supposed to be. That's pretty much the sum of it. So it's kind of the opposite security. It's also not about keeping things confidential. It's about authentication, not encryption. Uh, finally, it's probably worth mentioning that almost everything I've ever been asked to sign via DocuSign becomes a matter of public record anyway. Like if you're buying a house, all of that's going to get published at the local courthouse no matter what. So whether it's gone over public email is not much going to matter. John mentioned a UK solicitor, and I, I don't know exactly what documents are going on, but for an awful lot of court cases, again, whatever happens in the case becomes a matter of public record. So it may not be as big as a concern as you're thinking. Also consider that before they used DocuSign, the lawyers mostly used fax machines. <laughs> How secure is a fax machine? <laughs> Arguably, maybe more secure. It's a little harder to divert. I mean, it's possible, but it's a little harder to divert a phone number than it is to uh, get, you know, some some Yahoo's email address and get them to bite on a phishing lure and uh the next thing you know, they're forwarding everything to some random Gmail address, which, by the way, I have seen happen in lawyers' offices where, like, I walk into a new law office, you know, that's, that is a potential client and discover that every single one of their emails is being forwarded to, you know, some random string of trash at gmail.com. And none of them has any idea what that is. <laughs> and then you find out that, you know, every email password in the office is like last name one exclamation mark. Yeah. So, uh, you know, your concern with the confidentiality of your documents at the solicitor's office might start more inside the office than, <laughs> you know, with the in transit with DocuSign. But yeah, I think the biggest thing there is just that uh, DocuSign, I don't think, does what you think it does. It's mostly just about making it easy to get people to sign stuff and, you know, avoiding the whole 
print this out, scribble on it with a pen and then scan it and have it come out in potato quality on the other side. And by time all four people sign it, you can't actually read what you're agreeing to anymore. Which to be fair, DocuSign is at least as secure and confidential as that. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late-night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up, and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit, and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first-class always available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Okay, Byron asks... What's the best way to do SSL certs for services like GitLab or Mattermost that are hosted on an air-gapped internal development network? I know I could use self-signed certs, but then others would have to click through to allow their browser to proceed to the sites. Is there a better way? You can usually still use Let's Encrypt as long as you can make the, the DNS part public enough. Like the C name was underscore acme dash challenge dot the domain dot com or whatever. Yeah. Uh, as long as that can be exposed on the internet to prove that you own the domain that it's using, you can still get the Let's Encrypt certificate even if it's air gapped. Now, you know, if the machine doing it is air gapped, you're going to have to create the certificate on a different machine and, and find some way to get it in there. But your GitLab install is not actually air gapped. Otherwise, it's not very useful. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not publicly exposed. And so. Yeah, we do stuff like that uh, all the time to to get SSL certificates for internal things that aren't meant to go out anywhere. You can even have your Let's Encrypt infrastructure run on a completely separate web server on the same box to just maximize the isolation. You you know, if you're doing your internal services on Nginx, you can stand up an Apache instance on that box that literally is for nothing but grabbing the cert, you know, from Let's Encrypt and uh, just set up a script to, you know, copy the cert over to where Nginx needs it. Yeah, like uh, at Scale Engine, we have to do this for customers. So we actually have a VM called Keys, and all it does is run the Acme client for a bunch of different customers and then check their keys into a repository that our uh, Puppet system can grab and deploy to all the servers. So when they update their certificates, they can either run the Acme client on the Keys VM as their user, or if they have some other requirements or whatever, they can just upload the certificate to us often enough that it's never out of date. And if you don't like all that, or also if you want to use like, you know, completely private top level domain that you would not be able to get Let's Encrypt for, like if you want to do .lan or, you know, .mycompany or whatever that only works inside that network, then you're going to need to set up your own certificate authority. And um, 
that doesn't mean that your users have to click through a warning every time. It just means that part of your process has to be getting the CA.cert from your authority into the root trust, you know, on each of your users' machines. And that way your users will trust any certificate generated by that CA. Um, the easiest way to do that is probably going to be to use the easy RSA package that used to be an automatically installed uh, part of OpenVPN. But now easy RSA is its own entirely separate package. You can set that up. It's not super duper easy, but it's not that hard either. You can also piggyback off uh, Windows Active Directory domain if, if you happen to have that in your infrastructure. I don't know what your if the rest of your infrastructure looks like, but I've done it that way before, you know, or the opposite. Uh, we reuse the puppet certificates that each machine has to authenticate them for other things. So they actually have to use their host puppet certificate to prove they're one of our machines in order to check out things like the certificate store. All right. Brandon wrote to us, what is the best practice for updating around 10 to 15 servers? For my environment, I have around 13 Ubuntu servers and I make sure to install updates on a weekly basis. I'm curious how I could reduce the amount of time spent doing that while not compromising security. Now, this is one I can answer, I think, I think. Oh boy. So make sure that unattended updates is installed and then also use it to schedule reboots regularly because you get a new kernel from Ubuntu. I think it's every three weeks for the LTS. So am I right? Mostly. You said unintended updates and it's actually unattended upgrades. Damn it. I meant unattended upgrades. I just used tab completion. That's why. But other than that, that was right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Apt install unattended upgrades. Um, you can add the config in there to automatically reboot. Uh, I, I would. I usually will do like a, you know, 3 a.m. on a Sunday kind of a thing and and do it weekly. Um, but that's that's kind of to preference as to, you know, how how frequently you want to reboot and how quickly you want to make sure you get a new kernel. Uh, you don't usually have like a remote code execution, you know, in a kernel upgrade when you get one anyway. Beyond that, you, you know, you absolutely will still see, like if you shell into a server that you've got unintended upgrades running on and you do an apt update, it will still tell you that there are packages which can be upgraded. The important thing to realize is those aren't security upgrades. They're feature upgrades. You don't need those. Yes. If you want it, you can install it, but you should not feel like you just have to run around shelling into 13 boxes to install feature upgrades, you know, every week or two. That's definitely the the big thing in the end is separating out those security fixes from just every software update. Because yes, you want to supply apply the security fixes and get them going, but you don't necessarily, especially unattended, want to be updating the version of a bunch of software. Now, in an LTS distro, you know, the version isn't necessarily going to change to the same degree, but being able to separate those is kind of important. It's like it came up with the OpenSSL update last week. You know, they issued the new version 1.1.1k and it had the fixes to the two big vulnerabilities, but it also had some random fixes to like a, a printf statement to not uh, divide by zero and a couple things that, you know, only if you ran a certain command was it going to cause the problem and it, all it did was crash the user space binary. So it wasn't the type of thing you would actually ship as part of the security update. And the security teams for all these OSs had to do a bunch of work to separate out the security fix that they want to force on everybody from little bug fixes or even just new features that we don't want to ship to everybody. And then you end up with the interesting situation of technically that means FreeBSD is still shipping OpenSSL 1.1.1H, uh, not K, 
but it's got all the fixes from K, but not all the features from K. And then, you know, somebody with a security scanner that's not as smart is going to say, oh, H, that therefore it's not up to date. It's like, no, it has the security fixes. It just doesn't have the new feature that we didn't want anyway. But, you know, if you're dealing with automated PCI compliance scanners, they're going to ding you on everything on the planet anyway, because they actually check for bleeding edge, you know, feature uh, version numbers, you know, right from the vendor, which literally nobody has. You know, you get those security fixes backported to whatever the library version is on your operating system. And the thing that really pisses me off about that, it's Salter rant time, is that you can absolutely still detect that you have the security fix from the automated scan, because when you check for the library, version, you'll see something like, you know, open open SSL 1.1.1 dot, you know, H dash Ubuntu 16. And that dash Ubuntu 16 tells you you're on the 16th security backport Mm -hmm. from the Ubuntu team. And that actually contains the fix for the CVE that that stupid PCI scanner is going to ding you on. And you know how you deal with that when the PCI scanner dings you on that thing? You just tell them, no, it's fine. And they say, okay. (laughs) So it's like, why am I burning hours of my life on this to have you ding me for something that you don't understand that I can then just tell you, no, that's fine. And you just accept that and go on. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't we just assume that I knew what I was doing to begin with? Well, you know, I remember when the, the PCI rules were all like, you know, this has to be all firewalled off unless that's inconvenient. And then it's just fine. Like every one of the security requirements just had, unless it's inconvenient and then it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's still that way. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or comments. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.